thought of everything just became overwhelming. I would convince myself that I just wasn't worth anything and I just needed to die. Death doesn't scare me. <laughs> Living scares me. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There, you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thedepressionfiles. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health. Topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm your host, Al Levin. I'm really excited. Today on the line we have Lorraine Montez. Lorraine is a film producer, an actor, and a writer. Welcome to the show, Lorraine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I, I'm excited to uh, hear about some of the incredible work you're doing and so forth. But before we even jump into that, I'd like to start with, I, I know you've had a, a long history of depression, and it sounds like it happened right around uh, teen years, maybe going, when you were going through puberty type of time. Yep, exactly. That's that's when I would say it really hit. I, I think that I was depressed even earlier, but as far as I can trace it back, puberty is when it got to the point where it seemed unbearable at times. And looking back, even pre-puberty, what are some things you look back on and say, wow, I bet that certainly could have been some depression? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, I was always a kid that slept a lot. And I know kids need a lot of sleep. But I was a kid that could sleep like 12 or 14 hours with no problem. Of course, my parents didn't let me do that because I had school and things like that. Uh, but I, I also think that there was, even though I come from a family of five kids, the other siblings are much older than me. And, uh, I think that there was a lot of feelings of emptiness, um, that I mistook a lot of times for maybe loneliness, but looking back on it, I, I'm sure there was a depressive element to it. And I do know that depression actually runs in both sides of my family. So yay, genetics. Where do you see the depression in the family? Well, on my mother's side, my uncle killed himself. Um, 
and uh, had been depressed for a really, really long time beforehand. Uh, on my dad's side, my dad suffered. He was a World War II vet. He was uh, in Patton's Army in Africa and Italy for five years, and he came back with some really serious postpartum depression um, that I think he would have had it anyway, but there's just been evidence on both sides of my family that there's uh, there's just this tendency toward uh, uh, a, a clinical depression. Um, right. I know that for you know several members of my dad's family, especially the males in the family, they were very depressed. But of course, you didn't talk about things like that back then right absolutely and you mentioned your uncle had died by suicide i'm so sorry to hear that how old were you and did you know your uncle um i i knew him i had met him once when i was very young but i know that my mother was close to him and i think i was a kid when he did this i i think i must have been maybe 13 14 okay well, it's interesting because you mentioned that you may have been depressed prior to puberty, but puberty, which probably I'm guessing was around 13, 14, that same time, you mentioned that your depression became unbearable at times. And what makes you say it was unbearable? Can you give us a, a bit of a description of that? Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I've learned to watch the warning signs over the year and try to do some some changing to, you know, get myself away from it, but it, it varies. Right. So when I, <laughs> I also suffer from a double depression, according to my doctor, which is I have that clinical depression. And then I had an overlay of depression with my periods, which okay. is also fun. Um, but so what happens to me is if it's a time when it's coming on with my periods, which I think is just probably maybe a hormonal overlay, I'm not sure. It sort of feels like I can't do anything. It's physiological, right? Like my head feels overwhelmed, my body feels heavy. It's very hard for me to get up and move. Um, all I want to do is sleep. I'm also in pain from the period itself. And then there are other times uh, when I just have the regular depression and it almost feels, the best way I can describe it is it feels like a shadow coming over me that I can't quite catch in my peripheral vision, but I know it's there. And, and it also feels like an overlay, but that overlay can be different, right? It can take on the the critic in me and and just constantly torture me it can you know turn into obsessive thoughts that are constantly torturing me it you know when it gets really really bad it can take on suicidal ideology um i don't have that as much as i used to i was kind of convinced growing up that i didn't think I'd make it past 40 because I had so much suicidal ideology. I was fortunate enough to get some help and have some support from my husband. Um, and so I'm now 61. Uh, but even now there are certain things that'll happen. I'll feel that shadow coming over me or I'll start to get these really depressive 
thoughts or I'll lose all of my energy and I can tell it's coming. And sometimes I can have, you know, something that'll be a distractor for me that'll help move me in a positive direction. But honestly, I just went through one last week where, boy, I just couldn't, two days, I struggled really hard. And I can't say I was suicidal during that episode, but I can say when those things hit, they become so overwhelming that sometimes you just don't care if you live or die. Right. You don't even care if you get out of bed. I don't care if I eat. I lose a lot of weight when I'm depressed because I don't eat. Right. And so. are these, I know you've just mentioned how your husband is supportive and you're back into like today. Are, is this the same way you would describe your depression back when you were 13, 14 years old? It would typically hit around your period and it would be extreme at those times. No, I had the depression every month, all the time, but it got worse when I had the periods overlay it. Okay. Um, I, I would say that the that the depression was likely more extreme in my teen years because, hey, hormones, you right. know, that, that really makes a difference. That being said, um, it's less about the intensity of the session of depression that might come on and more about the, the fact that I'm older and I have the ability to identify and try to give myself some switchers. And like I said, a lot of times that works, but sometimes it doesn't. And I am on medication and I have been since my forties, I'm on Celexa and, uh, it works really, really well for me. Nice. And so when you were a teen, can you describe other ways that the depression impacted you? Was it affecting your school life, your social life, family life? Well, I didn't have much of a social life, so yeah. Uh, you know, when you're depressed and you're questioning yourself all the time, um, and that's overlaid with that depression because teens will question themselves anyway, it, the, it feels sometimes like... I get really anxious and I'm on pins and needles. And that happened a lot when I was a teen where it, the thought of everything just became overwhelming or I would convince myself that I just wasn't worth anything and I just needed to die. I just, it would just be better for everybody, including me if I was dead. I, it wasn't death that scared me because I, I, I had to face death at a very young age, at the age of eight. And so death doesn't scare me. <laughs> Living scares me. Why do you say you faced death at age eight? Because my 25-year-old brother died suddenly, and unfortunately it didn't have to happen the way it did, and he left behind his pregnant wife with their first child, and... Uh, it changed my whole life when my mother got the news because she had him when she was 15 years old wow. during World War II. And so uh, it devastated my family. It was a very terms of endearment type of thing. Um, and uh, it, it changed a lot of things. And for me, it exposed me to very close, unexpected death at an age that no child should be. Right. Exposed right. to that kind of grief and loss. But how, how many had, are. How had he died? He died in a plane accident. Uh, he he was uh, 
he was a radar dude that was a civilian working with the military because he had been in the Navy and he was uh, flying with, unfortunately, a pilot and a co-pilot back from Puerto Rico to the United States and the pilot and co-pilot had gotten drunk the night before and they showed up drunk and they were flying the airplane drunk and when they ran into a storm they gave my brother the wrong coordinates to wire back to the tower and because of that the plane crashed and everybody got out but my brother Um, he was screaming for help his best friend who had a broken leg jumped in and tried to get him out but couldn't do it on his own Oh, my goodness. So that is incredibly it, tragic. It, it, incredibly tragic. And, you know, his wife was pregnant with their first child, which was they were saving for a surprise for my parents as their first grandchild. So wow. It was a lot. It was a lot. And it, it, it changed the dynamics of everyone in my life. And it exposed me to death, like I said, at a really early age. So, you know, going through life with depression for me isn't a fear of death. It's it's making sure that I live a, a good, joyous life, which can be really hard Right. when right. you have a mental illness. Do you think uh, that that death of your brother when you were only eight years old had an impact on your depression and your, your oh. long life of depression? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yes, of course. You and is can't. That, is that something you've worked on through therapy? The loss of your brother? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yes, many times. I mean, it's the whole, you know, he was the he was really an awesome guy. In fact, he was I don't know if you are old enough to remember the Smothers Brothers show, but two weeks before at two weeks after he died, he had been scheduled to go perform on the Smothers Brothers show. He's a very talented musician. And then he died, and he wasn't able to do that. Um, he he was just this really great guy. But, of course, when you die at that age and you're a great guy, you get catapulted to sainthood in the family. And that's hard to live up to when you're the siblings coming behind that. Right. And my parents didn't do it on purpose. Everybody was just in deep, deep grief and some of us dealt with it through acting out some of us dealt with it by pushing it down and you know for me the therapy didn't come until my 30s right and so your parents either didn't realize you were depressed or didn't talk about it at the time throughout your high school days and so forth you know it's very interesting um my dad, like I said, uh, suffered from really bad postpartum depression from World War II. So uh, he was 53 when I was born, and I was the fifth out of five kids. And uh, sh- about six years after I was born, he had like several massive heart attacks in a row. And so dad did his best, but he just wasn't there mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, he was there. He went to work. He provided for his family. Of course, I had moments of really loving, great memories with my dad, and I have other moments that are not good at all because he was a rager as well based on his postpartum depression. And for my mom, my mom was always there for me. She was very supportive, but, you know, she also suffered from her own depression, and she didn't like to talk about those things. But I would get up. I I have a memory of her where I would – I got up one night when I was a teenager – and I've thought about this memory a lot now, being an older woman. Um, all the lights were out, and I, I got up to get a drink of water or something. And I saw a silhouette on the couch 
And I went over and it was my mom. And I said, are you okay? And she said, go back to bed. I'm fine, go back to bed. And I realized many years later, not till my 40s, that she probably did that a lot more than I knew about. Ah, right. And that was her way of giving herself some peace, you know, and trying to deal with her own psychological issues and her own struggles. Right, right. And you said your dad raged. What exactly do you mean by that? And you mentioned postpartum. I think you mean PTSD. Oh, postpartum. What am I thinking? (laughs) Just wanted to make sure. There, there are arguments that some men also experience postpartum, so I didn't want to assume. But yeah, so PTSD, right? And PTSD, so, I'm so sorry. My, my husband calls me Miss Malaprop, and he's right. <laughs> I truly am a Malaprop lady. Yes, yeah, so PTSD from World War II. Um, yeah. yeah, he suffered that a lot, and you know, men at that time couldn't talk about it, yeah. and so they pushed it way down, and when my dad, it came out as raging, and I don't... Rage like anger you're talking about. Oh, big anger, like at the drop of a hat for different reasons. And he got physical with us. I mean, by today's standards, he mainly it was spankings, but the spankings could like come out of nowhere. Like I remember as a really little kid, like maybe nine, and I wasn't the easiest kid, I'll admit it. But I said something and it made him so angry. He grabbed my shoulder and he just started spanking me. Like in front of everybody as hard as he could to the point where I peed my pants. And right. I'm like, that's not a good thing. Um, and he definitely used to slap us around, you know, uh, at a dinner table. The The joke was don't get on daddy's left side because, you know, he's right. left-handed. Right. And even if somebody at the end of the table would say something that would piss him off, he'd slap the kid next to him. Um, wow. And, you know, it wasn't like horrible abuse, but it was definitely – abuse physical abuse and there was some mental abuse there and it i am sure it came out of his own ptsd yeah you know and how that affected him because he never went to therapy my mom and dad were depression age parents they didn't believe in wow yeah well that must have been so tough for you as a kid not knowing who you were going to come home from school to what your dad was gonna you know how he would react yeah And I will say he could also be very loving and, you know, you could sit with him and listen to old music and he could be a really funny guy to be around. But I, I guess for me, that was always the other thing about understanding his depression and my father and I got along better than he did with my older siblings. I think part of it was because I came along when he was a little more tired (laughs) and I could see the love in him start to come out because he was too tired to rage anymore, if that makes any sense. And so I think I was able to see his mental health in a way that the other kids maybe couldn't. Right. Right. Or weren't, didn't experience. They had a different dad than me, you know? Yeah. So as the youngest, the the next older one was how much older than you? Six years older than me. Okay. And then my oldest brother, the one that died, was 17 years older than me. And my two sisters were 10 and 12 years older than me. Okay. Wow. Quite a spread amongst y'all. Very much so. It's almost like I'm a child from a second marriage, but there was no second marriage. Right. Right. 
I, I, my mom used to call me my little gate crasher. I call myself a drunken, enjoyable night. <laughs> okay. Well, six years isn't too much. I mean, I would. Were you pretty tight with the the sibling who's six years older? Oh no, he used to beat me up all the time. Okay. Oh, <laughs> wow. All right. All right. I deserved it. I would poke and prod him. Uh, but no, he, again, mental health issues, man. My yeah. brother, brother ended up, um, he struggled for a lot of years. Bless his, bless his soul. He died a few years ago of cancer, but actually, uh, we hadn't been in touch 15 years before that, uh, right after my mom died because he just became a raging alcoholic. And when I say raging, I also mean, yes, violent right. alcoholic. Right. And, and he, you know, he threatened one of my sisters and it just, it wasn't good. And so for our own wow. safety, didn't deal with it. Yeah. And you did see him before he passed away from the cancer. I talked with him. I didn't see him. Uh-huh. Um, he, it, it, we had, when my mother died about 16 years ago, it broke my family. Everybody was also having horrible things happening in our own lives. My dog was dying from the same cancer. My mother was dying from at the same time. Oh, no. Yeah, it was fun. Um, And so there were lots of other things happening, lots of drama. My brother's wife came to him and basically said, I want a divorce. I'm going to go and be with this woman. He knew she was bisexual when they married, but it really messed with his head when she did it. It didn't surprise us. We wished her the best, but it drove him into alcoholism and he refused to get help. And again, I'm going to say it's the depression because, you know, I think that for me, there, there was one day in my early 30s where I woke up and I literally could not get out of bed. I was one of these type A personalities. I had a lot of things going. I'm very good at everything I do. Everybody loves to work with me because of that. I juggle lots of things at one time. However, I woke up one day and I couldn't move. And the only thing that saved me was, uh, I, there, this was before cell phones, um, there was a phone, a landline by my bed. So I spent all day talking to my mom and my husband and my sister and, you know, the people, my friends, the people that were my support group. And I, it was then that I finally realized I, I need to get some more help for this. And so I went into my doctor and I said, I think I'm clinically depressed. And we talked about it. And then he said, you're definitely clinically depressed. And I said, I'm really embarrassed. And he said, why? You have a thyroid problem and you're not embarrassed about it. You take a pill for it, don't you? It's just your body. And I went, oh, you're right. And so I went down a path with that in therapy to help me try to gain an understanding of what I could do to live a really fulfilling life for myself. Right. Unfortunately, my brother's choice was exactly the opposite. Yeah. So I feel like there's always at least one breaking point, if not more, in people's lives who suffer from mental illnesses, especially from depression, where you have a brief moment of clarity where you can say to yourself, I need to find a better way for myself and my joy so that I can be joyous for me and for others around. Right. Cause it's also really hard 
to live with somebody who's depressed. Yeah, absolutely. So you had that moment of clarity when you had a real tough day, couldn't get out of bed, reached out for help with your mom and your husband and just decided, I need to get some help for this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I had had, you know, I'd had a lot of struggles before that, but that was the one that was the tipping point for me. Everybody's tipping points are personal Mm -hmm. and different. Um, But I think that if, if you can identify those in your life as someone who is depressed, it's, um, it's a, it's a good start down the road to helping to learn what your switchers are. You know, those things that as you feel that depression creeping up or coming on, you try a switcher to get rid of it, right? The things that give you joy for me, I love to sing, so I'll sing or I'll do a little karaoke at my house. Uh, I'm a creative person. Sometimes I like to paint things. Um, I act, I write. And so sometimes it's just sleep. Sometimes it's playing with my dogs, whatever those switchers are. Sometimes it's talking to friends. When you start to be able to identify those and work them into your life, they can become unconscious habits that can really help you when that depression tries to take you away right yeah absolutely i'm curious you mentioned how your dad um with his ptsd from the war uh, became super angry which is often a lot of people don't realize but especially with men can definitely can be a symptom of depression you mentioned he was verbally and physically abusive was he drinking a lot as well um you know that's an interesting question because i've often asked myself would I define my dad as like an alcoholic? And he absolutely drank, uh, but he didn't drink all the time. So it's a hard question for me to answer. So he held down a great day job. He was not a day drinker. He definitely would come home, you know, like on Friday nights once a month or so, drunk and howling at the moon in the front yard, which was hysterical to me <laughs> as a little girl, but my mother was like, Oh my God, the neighbors. Um, but, and, and he definitely knew how to party on weekends or at parties, but I never remember him like being, uh, like I said, a day drinker or someone who just sat and drank aside from like maybe a glass of wine when he got home from work or something like that. Right. But yeah, I mean, I was my dad an alcoholic. Yeah, probably. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know. It depends on how you define it, but right. But he was fun when he drank. So that was good. (laughs) He was a funny drunk. He was a very loving, funny man when he was drunk. And I think it was because he could let down his defenses for a little while. Right. Right. Yeah. So you started at, Around 30, you said you finally got decided to get some therapy, and yep. that's when you started taking medication as well? Yeah. And uh, how would you describe like the starting of your medicines and the starting of therapy? You know, I didn't really have any issues with it, but I'm, I'm that kind of person. I'm an actor, and so I'm used to creating a a trust space and being vulnerable. Um, I think the things that were important for me was to find a therapist that really could relate to me. Uh, And for me, that just happened to be a female. Um, 
who dealt with sort of these issues of grief and loss. And believe me, it's I've done the therapy since my 30s. I was back in them for a while right before COVID because, you know, <laughs> yeah, COVID. Uh, but um, I didn't. I didn't, I went to one or two therapists and I found one that I just trusted with my instincts, right? And from there, talking about it was okay because I've talked about it a lot. Uh, I think the things that that really bring me anymore to the brink of either crying or, you know, I'm not ready to deal with it are you know, those issues that when my mother died in my early 40s and my entire family exploded, it's like I got to go through loss and grief all over again and add more grief onto it. Uh, as far as taking Celexa, it, it kind of was a breeze for me. I mean, I yawned a lot for the first couple of weeks, which is a side effect. Um, and I definitely had to go through a period because sexually I wasn't orgasming or I wasn't orgasming as powerfully. I will say the, that the beautiful thing about Celexa is that you can come on and off of it pretty quickly. Like I don't recommend taking a break from it without checking with your doctor. But if I started to feel like too numb or I wasn't able to enjoy my sex life anymore, I would skip a day maybe two. And then I, as long as I was steady that I'd go back on it and then I could really, have the full experience as I got older and continued to use it all of that just evened out and it was fine right right and so even the stopping for a day or two you work that out with the psychiatrist and and they had said yeah let's do that oh yeah with my doctor yeah family doctor yeah family doctor okay. yeah the one that had prescribed the medication for me in the first place and yes. was saying this is really fast acting but it's dangerous to do that right and um and the other thing that can happen to me sometimes and i i have to be diligent about this is like i'll be cruising along i'll be feeling great i'll just forget to take my medication ah uh, right for two or three days and then i'm like you know, I'm yelling at my husband or I'm getting really emotional or on and I'm like, I feel like crap. What's going on? And I'm like, oh, I forgot my okay. Right. All right. So I've gotten in the habit of taking it in the mornings, but sometimes you just forget, right? And so it's really it's I think it's a you can't avoid your depression and you can't ignore your depression, at least for me. Yeah. Right. And I think I think you've seen how in my family, sort of my dad ignored his depression and you saw what happened. And my brother tried to avoid his depression right. and you saw what happened. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, for me, I don't ignore it. I don't avoid it and I don't fight against it. I embrace it. And I say, I understand that this is a physiological disease and that when those days come when I'm depressed, it's like having the flu. So I'm going to call in sick. I'm going to take it easy on myself that day. I'm going to discover ahead of time what my switches are to help me with this. I'm going to maybe take an extra Selexa one day out of the week if I need that. I'm obviously going to be telling my doctor all of this. I am going to go back into therapy and, and you know ask these questions of what is causing this. It's physiological for sure, but grief and loss and stress and, and you know childbirth and all of that it, it can trigger it or it can trigger an overlay of another depression. And I'll tell you, I, <laughs> until my early thirties, again, I honestly didn't think 
there was anything wrong with me. I thought this is how everybody felt. And life was just this hard. Wow. It's not this hard. It's not. I mean, life's hard. Don't get me wrong. It's hard. But not the hard that depression makes it seem like. Not the overwhelming that depression tries to make you think life is. Right. Well, I appreciate you mentioning that anytime you stopped your meds or were um, for a couple of days or you wanted to add a dose and whatnot, you're always working with your doctor because I think that's really important. A lot of people, I think, feel like, oh, I feel so much better now. I'm just going to stop my meds and they don't know how to wean off properly. And you always should always, always do that with a doctor. And certain meds, uh, certain meds are easier to wean off of than others. And again, the doctor is going to have that information and help you with it. Yeah, I mean, if you have a heart problem, you're not going to go, oh, I feel okay today. I'm going to just read off these. Right. Right. No. It's the thing that I, and and I think society does this, and this is what that first doctor that helped me, really helped me to look at depression in a very different way. The brain's just an organ in your body. Yeah. It's no different from your liver or your heart or your kidneys or your skin. And if you don't pay attention to it and allow the doctors to treat it, then just like any other organ in your body, if you're depressed, it's going to make you feel like all you can do is fail. Right. Right. Do you use a particular type of therapy with your therapist, like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or or just a, a mix of things? Oh, gosh, I want to say the last therapist that I most recently went to, um, she was dealing a lot with the grief and loss portion of a lot of stuff I'd gone through with COVID. And um, we did a lot of talking because, as you can tell, I'm a talker. And she was a woman who would often just sort of throw back some interesting questions. But she did have me go through like a couple of exercises that I still think I have on my desktop here. Right. Look and see I, have I, I was one. just curious because a few times you've mentioned kind of the, the negative thoughts and a lot of times it's CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, where a therapist will really discuss those negative thoughts and how you can catch yourself with those negative thoughts, stop those negative thoughts and, and change them. Um, oh, yeah. There you go. See, I just don't I don't know the technical terminology. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes, she definitely did that. Uh And I'm also a very big believer in sort of the law of attraction. Um, I've read Eckhart Tolle, which I highly recommend. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, The the Power of Now is a great book. And um, A New Earth, actually, that's the thing that that happened to be the book that floated to me. It was an interesting story. I was acting at the time and the name of the pilot was book club and the book that the characters in the book club were supposed to read was a new earth. So I'm a, I'm a good actor. I do my research and I do my work. And so I read the book and I was like, Holy crap, this thing just changed my whole outlook on everything. Wow. So, uh, and I'm a big believer in just self mindfulness and growing emotional intelligence because, yeah. You know, uh, unlike your normal IQ, your emotional intelligence can just go up and up and up. And the more I've been able to do that, uh, the more I've been able to give myself a break and love me and become more of a third-party observer willing to help me in my life. 
Because awesome. you know, there's a there's a lot of self criticism with depression as well. Oh, there's yeah. a lot of self loathing. Absolutely. So you still to this day, each month at the time of your period, have extreme depression, like a very strong bout of depression. Well, I am fortunate enough to not have periods anymore, ah. and. So one of the things I will tell you is that after I went through menopause, which for me um, was not a whole lot of hard stuff. So it was really good for me and my husband. <laughs> right. um, but when I went through it, uh, I became a heck of a lot happier person. And I'm sure that part of that is because I was no longer dealing with those extreme bouts of depression. When I would have those extreme bouts of depression and pain, it was like, you know, curling up in the fetal position. Wow. Um, and again, not eating. I mean, I yeah. when I have a really major depressive episode that can last anywhere from... They usually last at least 24 hours and they can go for a like... These days, they can go for several days up to a week at a time. Uh -huh. But when I was younger, they could go for two, three, four weeks. Wow. I wouldn't eat. Yeah. And wow. I'm a little thing anyways. I'm five feet. And so it was, your, was your period regular? And the only reason I ask that is, would you then try to work your schedule around it? Like yeah. knowing well, like, okay, the 15th of the month, I'm always going to be in pain and majorly depressed. So I'm yes. just going to make sure I don't have anything busy at work during the middle of the month. I mean, were you scheduling all just based on that, your system? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't schedule work, although there were many times I just would call in sick during that time of the month. Um, but everything else, like socially, that wasn't times I went out. I made sure that I had you know, everything that I felt I needed next to me as far as like, I know I'm going to sleep for 14 hours, right? Or 16 hours. Um, you know, when I was married to my husband, I could, after probably God, a decade of marriage, um, finally communicate to him and say, "I, it's coming on, be ready. And then he would understand, oh, she's got to go sleep. Or I... If she's going to eat, it's because I'm going to go put something by the bed. Right. Right. And and then she she might or she might not eat it at that point. But, yeah, I mean, I had ibuprofen next to me for pain meds. Um, you know, you just, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it could definitely control a lot of my scheduling around anything but what I absolutely had to do. And sometimes I would try to power through at work and things would become so overwhelming I would just have to leave. Right. Those and are the you know, and for me, those are the those are the days that still stay with me where I get up and I know I'm depressed and I feel like crap and i have obligations and the last thing i want to do is have to deal with those obligations right. but i have to try to find a way to power through them and and on days when you've had to leave work because of your depression or and such would you share that with your colleagues no okay no it was just and I'm when sick. i fill out no, I'm sick. That's yeah. all I tell them. And and frankly when i fill out forms now they have depression as one of the Things on the forum, like if you're, you know, looking for work and they say, you know, do you, you know, the Disabilities Act, do any of these apply to you? I, I don't ever mark depression because I don't consider it for me 
I don't consider it a disability, but I also don't share that information with my employers. Right. I'm, I'm not going to do that because some employers would be great and some employers would definitely take advantage. And I've had both happen. Yeah. Well, that's a shame. Uh, I did hear from, you know, I interviewed a, another actor just a few months ago and uh, he did say that that he really felt like he lost jobs because people knew about his depression history and they just would yeah. not hire him. Well, and I'm not even talking, I mean, definitely in acting, I wouldn't share it. Although I think in my experience in the entertainment industry, people are just more accepting because we're artists and artists know that everybody's broken in one way or another, right? And that it's everybody's job to find their joy and live a fulfilling life. And we accept where everybody is. I'm like, I'm talking about my day jobs. Like when I was in marketing communications, Um, especially if I had positions where I was in public relations and I had to talk to the media, there was no way I was sharing that information. Right. Right. No way. Yeah. Which boils down because of the stigma, which also then leads to discrimination. Yeah, exactly. And even if there's not discrimination, you know, uh, there is, we all have unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I felt for one of my my bosses uh, in a day job I had, it did not end well. And I'd been there four and a half years and was really successful. But it just, it got to the point where we couldn't work together. And I, I'm sure she'd give her own side of the story. But um, I really believe part of it was because she had to deal with mental illness in her own close family. And when she found out I was depressed, it, it just didn't. Was too close for home. Too close to home. I think, I think so. That's obviously just my perception. Her perception might be different. She just might say, Oh no, she just got to be a handful or whatever. I don't know. But, uh, I feel like we try really hard to accept everyone at least a lot of us try hard to accept everyone, but we all have our own unconscious bias that we have to be very aware of as well. Right, right. So let's get into to some of the work you do. You're a film producer, an actor, a writer, and you have produced and acted in some feature films, correct? I have a few, yeah. Yeah, oh, it was quite a few I, I saw on your website and so forth. Tell us about some of the films. It seems like quite a few of them were horror films. Yeah, horror is, you know, when you're producing uh, indie films, uh, horror is the genre to go for because it's it's always been the highest ranked as far as popularity for audiences so it's easy to get to distributors to get out to people um i i also like smart horror i grew up with rod serling and the the twilight zone and of course rod serling's night gallery and uh uh i love what i call smart horror i don't like hacker slasher where there's a lot of blood and gore and killing for no reason okay i i want to see a story behind it yeah right right and can you, as somebody who's not in the film industry, myself, explain what the the role of the producer typically is? Yeah. In a nutshell, uh, the producer's job is to ensure the financial health and welfare of the film. Now, that being said, there's a very large job component that goes with that, including everything from 
helping to ensure your set is safe because your first assistant director needs to take care of safety and make sure you don't have any accidents uh, all the way down through potentially doing what we call a line item budget for a film, which has like 1600 lines of budgeting you do uh, through pre-production um, being on set, helping organize things before you get on set in pre-production pitching to investors, finding distributors on the back end. It's a, it's a huge job and it, it touches every aspect of a film. Yeah, that's really cool. So it is much more than just ensuring the finances of the film. Well, the, the, the you know, the financial health and welfare of the film is only successful uh, if the producers are doing the job in every aspect of that job. That includes safety, communications, you know, innovations, marketing, right, uh, right. finding investors, all of it. So it's a very... New York Minute way of trying to describe a really big job. Right, right. And then you also act and write. Um, how many different films have you been in? Uh, as far as acting, I think the the probably the ones that folks would recognize the most would be I was in Z Nation in one episode uh, and that was on the sci-fi channel it's all about zombies of course and then I was in an indie film called um, I have to remember the name of it it was with it starred Carrie Elwes who is the lovely actor from Princess Bride and Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and I got to act directly with him, which was wow. super fun. Awesome. Um, and then I've been in a couple of small TV things here and there. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's awesome. Do you have a, uh, just out of curiosity, a, a piece that you are most proud of, whether it was a, a piece of acting or the a producing or the writing? I, I'd say I have it in all of those. Um, so I think that Acting wise, <laughs> my funnest part, I would say maybe not my, it, I was proud of it, but my funnest part recently is from a short film called 1 800 Witches Got a Burn, in which I got to start off as an innocent patron lady and turn into a witch, which was super fun. <laughs> wow. And it was two hours in makeup and costumes, so that was fun. Um, and then I think for uh, producing, I'm. I'm right in the middle of producing a feature film in New Mexico called Tramp, which is a really great story. Um, and a friend of me and mine uh, are actually writing uh, a series called Marked as Other about two young, nerdy, lonely 13-year-old girls growing up in the 1980s who are trying to understand labels and misconceptions and bias people. And it's all based on true stories of a friend of mine and me growing up in the Southwest. Wow. Awesome. Uh, for my writing, I, I'm proud of lots of things that I'm doing uh, on the writing side of things, uh, as well as marked as other. I think that uh, The Well, as we've talked about, it is a theater piece that I will be adapting to a screenplay. And of course, the thing that I'm really proud of about with The Well is uh, – it's got a lot of social commentary about depression and mental illness that I knew had to be said 16 years ago when I wrote it. Yeah. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting it out to the world. We were going to premiere it in 2019 in uh, Shoreline, which is just outside of Seattle. And then COVID hit. So I will be premiering it in Albuquerque, New Mexico, hopefully within the next uh, 18 months. That is fantastic. So tell us more about The Well. 
I know that, uh, yeah, that was something that I noticed right off the bat. It's really based on characters that have depression. Also, I'm wondering, is it, is this a, like a theater production where it'll be live performers or is this, will it be a, a film? Yeah, it, right now it is a theater production with live uh, performers, but I will awesome. be adapting it into a screenplay. Um, so uh, The Well, as it's called, got its name because my husband used to tell me that he could always tell when I started to suffer from depression because my entire body language changed. Everything kind of turned inward and I shrunk. And he said, it's as if you were looking down into a well. Wow, right. So that's where the name comes from. And The Well is uh, what I would call a dark comedy musical. I'm not a traditional musical person. I'm more of a Bob Bossy musical person, if you know him, Bertolt Brecht. Um, so The Well is very biting, uh, very dark comedy. It involves three separate characters in three separate time periods. There's Lola Devine, who is my ode to Billie Holiday, um, and uh, Lola Devine is uh, self-medicating in the 1920s Paris. And depression, uh, when she comes around to taunt her, is playing on her uh, her self-loathing and uh, her being self-critical. Then there is Carol and Jack, who are set in the 1960s. And Jack is bipolar, and the story is about Carol trying to understand what's going on with Jack, because, of course, during the 60s, we didn't have as big of an understanding or acceptance of mental health issues that we do today. Um, And uh, Carol has a secret. She's pregnant. She doesn't know whether she should tell Jack or not, given his erratic behavior. And the way the well taunts Jack is that she is the lover to Jack. So she lays all over him and she prevents him from getting up and doing anything. She's very sultry. She's very seductive. And she just wants him to lay all the time and just be enfolded in her. And then (laughs) I told you it's a dark comedy. So uh, the well has the well woman has a cousin named Manic Manny uh, who comes in and is Jack's bipolar side. Oh, right. And so, yeah. So he, I might, after talking to you, I might change him from Manic Manny to uh, Bipolar Ben. But yeah. So he (laughs) comes in and we see Jack's manic side and then we see how that's affecting him and his relationship with Carol. And then there is a girl in modern day who's 13, who is the autobiographical of me of her name's Rachel and depression comes upon her when she starts puberty. And Rachel is the fighter of the group. And uh, there's a couple of boxing matches between Rachel and depression. And in one of them, depression beats the heck out of Rachel and in the last one, Rachel beats depression and basically tells her she's going to keep fighting her every day. And then in between, there's the comedy relief of the Greek chorus, which we call the dopamine players. And they nice. essentially come out and interact with the audience. And they have one song that they sing, but they sing different lyrics to it. And the song is always um, sort of a satirical, scathing remark on um uh, you know, different things like at one point they might come out and say, all the answers lie in uh, 
pills. They will cure your every ill. Red for stomach, green for head. Mix them up and you'll be dead. All the answers lie in pills. So they do this really little satirical weird thing. They have one that says all the answers lies in sex, love, love, lust. They have one that says all the answers lie in pot where they forget the words and hand out Twinkies to the audience. Wow, awesome. It's crazy. It's a crazy romp, but the whole point of it is depression is different for everybody, and it shouldn't be stigmatized because you wouldn't stigmatize somebody with a heart condition. Right. Um, And uh, it's just a way for, a non-threatening way for people to be informed and entertained at the same time if they don't understand depression or it can become something that those of us who suffer from it can embrace and say, oh, yeah, it's done that to me for sure. Right. Wow, this is phenomenal. So you wrote that uh, just, I mean, you created that all, all the, the entire script on your own, I'm guessing? The playbook, the script itself, yes. And then I had a great guy who also suffers from depression. He's my, uh, he's the composer, and uh, he's done an amazing job at doing the songs. Uh, I provided some of the lyrics. He massaged the lyrics. He provided a lot of the compositions and the melodies. Wow, cool. That is phenomenal. So you said that will be premiering in Albuquerque, did you say? I am hoping to. I have moved from the Pacific Northwest to Albuquerque because uh, a film uh, in New Mexico is taking off. Uh, but I am hoping to premiere it here within the next 18 months. You know, given if the pandemic is continues on a downward curve and and it, it's safe and we can get live audiences into the theater. Yes. Right. Right. And in my mind, I'm just curious. Like I could see you leading off the show kind of with a little knowledge or information around mental illness or why you created the show. Is there some plan for that? Oh, always. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be in the program. It'll be part of the um, publicity we do around it. And, you know, I... I am a person that understands the different levels and the the allure of the dark side. And I will say that, you know, yes, it's great to get this information out there, but information alone isn't helpful unless you give people some additional resources and, and support. So all of that will go along with it. And we are hoping to premiere it during mental health awareness month. So there you go. That is awesome. Wow. How exciting. So how can people learn more about The Well, the musical, and and how can they learn more just about you as well? Well, thanks for asking. You can go to thewellmusical.com. That's T-H-E-W-E-L-L musical, M-U-S-I-C-A-L.com. And you can see the playbook there, and you can listen to some of the songs from The Well. And you can check me out at LorraineMontez.com. That's L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E-M-O-N-T-E-Z.com. And I do have some exciting news coming up uh, with regards to writing and Mark other that I cannot announce until tomorrow. Oh, my ah! goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, What I will tell you is that we were accepted into a pretty prestigious um, writing lab 
for our uh, streaming series, Marked as Other. Um, and of course, uh, Al, I can provide you the name that is, later. That is fantastic news. And Thank will you. people be able to find out about that on your website once it's announced? Yeah, I'll put something on there uh, for sure um, so that people can understand. It's going to be, it's a long, it's a writing lab that'll go through the end of uh, this year, but it's it's got a lot of really good people involved with it, and it's been around a really long time, and we, uh, there were 200 applicants, and they only took 10, so. Wow, congratulations, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much. I hope it gets us somewhere. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'll make sure I have uh, the two websites in the show notes as well. And then uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, as I ask all of my guests, if somebody is listening to the show right now and is struggling with depression themselves, what's the biggest piece of advice you'd give them? If someone's struggling with depression right now, the biggest piece of advice I can give them is... Find your support group. They are out there, even if they're not your immediate family. There are people that understand. If it is getting really bad, please call the suicide hotline. We really, really care. I understand where you are. And it may get really hard sometimes. But please try to remember during those darkest of times, you're not alone. Yeah. We're here and we feel you. And we want you to stay and fight the good fight with us. Yeah, awesome. That's a fantastic piece of advice. Well, Lorraine, I want to, first of all, I want to wish you the best of luck with The Well, the musical. Thank That's you. going to be amazing. And uh, I also I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to be on The Depression Files. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on, and uh, keep up your great work as well. We, we need to hear from more people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, and uh, make sure you stay healthy. <laughs> thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression or any other mental illness and would like to be interviewed for the show or if you'd simply like to suggest a topic, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.